Let's pray. Mm. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, and we gather uh, online and we gather in person as a part of the Auburn Bible Chapel community, Lord. Lord, we come before you this morning. We have sung songs of worship to you and now we open your word, Lord. We invite your Holy Spirit to come speak to us, Lord. Speak to us through your word. Meet us where we're at. Teach us this morning what you have for us to learn this morning, Lord, because uh, your word is so precious. It is so meaningful. There's so much in it, and we thank you for it, Lord. Lord, we just uh, uh, we pray that you might help us to just set aside our worries, our concerns, and to focus on you, that through your, the guidance of your Holy Spirit, we may just, uh, we might just sense that your word is very alive and powerful and speak directly to us, Lord. And so we commit this time to you. We commit it just that uh, you would guide us uh, and direct us. In your name, amen. And all God's people said? Oh, come on, more life. And all God's people said? Amen. There we go. We need more life energy this morning because, if you're not aware, our foundation topic that we're talking about here this morning is rejoicing. That's right. This week's faith faith foundation is rejoicing. So how is rejoicing one of our foundation stones uh, of the Christian faith? Well, let's unpack this this morning. You know, it, it seems over the past year or so that either directly or indirectly, um, my sermon topics have dealt with joy or rejoicing. Uh, almost a year ago, in December 2020, we did a, um, a series uh, leading into Christmas on the Advent uh, topics, and I had joy. And if you remember way back then, my introduction was talking about different ad campaigns leading into Christmas that were using joy, because joy is a very popular word at Christmas time. Um, companies uh, that were using joy to promote the sales uh, at Christmas time. Uh, and probably the one that stood out the most to me at the time was Walmart. Walmart's slogan was, Joy Begins Here. Uh, in the summer, when we were working our way through the book of Philippians, uh, the, the one Sunday, I spoke on Philippians 4, 1 through 9, and again, uh, focused a lot on the word joy, and again, I turned to advertising uh, for my introduction. And that time, if you remember, I looked at BMW, the cars, and how they had been running a multi-year, like 10 years plus campaign where they were, all their advertising was based and focused on joy. And they openly admitted that, um, I'll just read the quote here, we acknowledge that how you make people feel is just as important as what you sell them. 
That was their, their focus. They were focused on trying to make their customers feel joy from driving the BMWs. And in Philippians 4.4, 4, if you remember, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And Paul was able to challenge the Philippians then with the challenge of rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing again. And, it, and those words are still alive for us today as we read them. We as Christians today are challenged to be joyful people. And, and Paul's life showed that. It didn't matter, seemed to matter what circumstance Paul was in. Paul had that, that foundation of joy in his life. And, and the question is, is, why did he have it? And why could he challenge us? What's, what, is, what is the real root? What is the real foundation of joy? Well, it goes back to God. God is a rejoicing God. That's where joy comes from, happiness. And that's why we're, we're asked to rejoice. Now, I'm not sure where you're at. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, a rejoicing God? That, that's not really how I think of God. Maybe your focus is more that God is more, you know, because of what's going on in your life. Maybe you think God's more of a, more of a killjoy. He's an overlord, just, you know, putting his finger in the bowl and stirring up my life, you know, because it's, it's messy. It's not much fun right now. But hold on, because as we dive into this this morning, we're going to learn how God is a rejoicing God. How joy, happiness, all comes from Him and Him alone. And right off the bat, in Scripture, it's one of the first things we learn. So if you're wanting to turn with me, in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to learn right away that God is a rejoicing God. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 10. Verse 10 reads, God called the dry ground land and gathered waters. He called seas. God saw that it was good. How about verse 12? The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruits with seeds in its according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. How about verse 18? To govern the day and the night and to separate light from dark. And God saw that it was good. You get where I'm going here? Verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. Over and over, it's repeated. God saw all that he was made in verse 31. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Use whatever English words you want to describe it. God saw it was good. He saw it was good. He was happy. He was rejoicing over what he made. He saw the universe. He saw the earth. He saw the animals, the trees, the water, the people. It was good. He was happy. He was rejoicing in everything 
that he made, and, it, and that's one of the key characteristics of God that we're being taught right off the bat when you open up your Bible in the very first book and in the very first chapter. There's so much of what he is. God made the vastness of the universe, all the galaxies, all the planets, the stars, the sun. And he rejoiced in it then, and he still rejoices in it now. He made people then, he's making people now. He rejoices in you. Yes, you and me. He looks upon us, he dwells amongst us, And he is so happy that he made you, that he made us. Why? Because we are made in his image. If he made something in his image, he's got to find joy on it. He's got to be happy about it, doesn't he? And we should find that encouraging to us. Maybe not so much the physical look in the mirror, image, but as a whole, you are made in God's image. Don't ever forget that. Remember that. That should bring you deep down rooted joy and excitement that God cared enough about you that he made you in his image. How about the book of Nehemiah? Thank you, Daniel, for, uh, for reading that and, uh, and battling through uh, those hard-to-say names. So Nehemiah chapter 8, because you know I often like to flip flip around here, and we had it read already to us. So let's summarize it a little bit. So it tells us right off the bat, well, first of all, if you've never read the book of Nehemiah, I challenge you to read it. It's a great story. I love the story of Nehemiah, and I, I haven't read it in entirety in a while, but I should, I should again. Um, it's just, there's a, a great, it's a great story of restoration, of the people of God coming back to him, uh, returning to their, um, the, to a homeland, returning to worshiping God as a group of, as a large group of people, rejoicing in the God of Abraham, rejoicing in God's word. And we read some of that in chapter eight. It's a, it's a great section. And what we read was all the people were called together, right? The leaders called all the people together, all the men, all the women. And Ezra, what did he do? He brought out the book of the law of Moses. He brought out the scriptures. They've just gathered back. They've just come back from exile, being, you know, all spread out, um, you know, being, f- you know, forced into the prisons and captivity, and now they're coming back as a people. They're restoring the land, and one of the first things that they do is they pull out God's word, and they read it. Ezra, stand- Ezra the priest stands in front of all the people. He reads the scripture to everybody, and the people are overcome with emotion. They're, they're, so, 
they're they're so overwhelmed by hearing God's word again. They're uh, so challenged um, and, and confronted with the truth that the people start weeping and mourning. And Ezra and the other leaders go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, that's enough. That's enough weeping and mourning. Now we want you to rejoice. We want you to be happy in hearing God's word. Verse verse 10. Let's read that again. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is your strength. Reading God's word is what we have today. That's where we should connect with God. That's where we should get our joy. It's directly right from God because that's where it's coming from. And that's where Ezra and the leaders wanted the people to focus. They wanted them to focus on the goodness of God and coming back together as a group and rejoicing, feeling that sense, that goodness from God. We are called to rejoice and to rejoice and to rejoice again and again. That's the type of people. Paul said it, and Paul said it because that's what he learned from the stories of the Old Testament also from God. If we read Verses uh, 11 through 18, you'll read how day after day after day, for, for eight days, they read, they gathered his people, they read the word of God. I don't know for how many hours every day, but it must have been quite the celebration to come back again after being exiled for so long and obviously Back then, you know, they didn't have their own, their own copies of it. But to sit there or stand there or whatever they did and listen to Ezra read God's word again and just penetrate them and to bring them happiness and joy like they had not experienced in so many years because now again they're being reminded of God's goodness, God's words. Verse 17 of that chapter, we read, the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. How much joy do you hear? Do you, how much joy do you have when you hear God's word? When you open up your own Bible whether it's here or on your phone, your tablet. Do you have joy? Are you excited to open it up and, and read what God has for you that day at that moment? I know I'm challenged by studying this that I don't always do that. Sometimes it's just, it's my routine. It's just, it's just what I do. And I don't always uh, approach with the excitement and the joy that I should, with the anticipation of 
what I'm going to read from the precious Word of God that day. God is the source of lasting joy. There's all kinds of joy and happiness, different things that bring us joy and happiness in this world. And I talked, uh, you know, one of the other messages about you know, how we chase happiness, but we hold on to joy. And that's where we're at. And we can hold on to joy because God is the source of that. God is a rejoicing God. It's one of his, again, first characteristics of him that we have learned. And we, so we should be like him. and We should be a rejoicing people. Brent, I just want to thank you. Last week, if you were here or if you heard it, Brent's topic was on God's Word, was on the Scripture. And it was a, it was a great message. I really enjoyed it. And if, if you haven't heard it, I, I encourage you, go to the Auburn Bible Chapel YouTube channel, watch it, listen to it. It's a, it, it's a great message on unpacking how important God's Word is uh, for us and how it speaks to us. Now, that's the Old Testament, right? Been diving into the Old Testament, what God you know, said to the people in. So what about the New Testament? You know, is there still joy come the New Testament? Sure there is. But let me say this bef- before we go to Luke chapter 15. In all of God's complexity, He cares for each one of us individually, one at a time. And don't ask me to explain it because that's God's complexity. But He made you in His image, and so He cares for you as an individual person. His love for you, His joy for you individually is top-notch. It's amazing. Anyhow, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. Sorry, Luke 15. Getting you all confused there, giving you a different... So here we have Jesus speaking, Jesus' words. And I just, I'm going to read the first two verses for you here just to start off. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So let's do a little comparison to what we read in Nehemiah. Who gathered there? Well, Israelites, people who had just returned from exile. Who do we have gathering here? We've got tax collectors Sinners, church leaders, very similar type crowd in the two stories, right? But here's one of the differences. Is they had God's word to read in the Old Testament. Here, they had God in the form of Jesus right there in front of them. God's word was alive more so alive than what it was back then. And again, in both cases, why did the people gather? The people gathered 
to hear God's Word. And here in Luke, they got to hear God's Word right from Jesus' lips. Even though a lot of people didn't recognize and didn't understand that, that's what was happening. In Nehemiah, the leaders were happy to read it. They were joyous and they were ready to explain it to the people. Here, a lot of the church leaders, they were grumpy, right? Why are these people here, right? And they didn't understand that they were about to hear words, God's words, from Jesus. And so, and in Nehemiah, it says that the leaders, because they were happy to hear God's word and explain it to the people, but here the leaders were grumpy, so they weren't going to explain it to the people. So what did Jesus do? Jesus knew. So Jesus, as he often did, talked to them in parables. And parables are uh, a godly, uh, uh, earthly story with a godly meaning to it. So basically, Jesus was keeping it simple and explaining it as he was speaking it. So, so let's read the first parable here, starting in verse 3, the parable of the lost sheep. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. There's another parable. Verse 8. The parable of lost coin. Jesus continues on. He says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls all her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And because of time, we won't go on. He, he tells three parables back to back. Different stories, but all very similar in meaning. He's talking about something that is lost, how, it is, how important that is to the person who lost it, and how they leave everything else and search for that. And the interesting thing is, is the celebration of joy seems ridiculous. It seems like the shepherd had a hundred sheep. One wandered away. Why did he call everybody to celebrate that he found the one? You still had 99 of them. The lady lost one out of her 10 coins. And possibly, you know, the way Jesus tells the story when she has the celebration calling everybody together, she, she possibly spent that whole worth of that coin in having the party to celebrate that she found the coin. It's ridiculous 
absolutely joyful celebration about finding what was lost. And that's what Jesus was trying to drive home, the point that he was trying to make. The the Israelites had heard Ezra read God's word. After returning from years of exile, being lost, probably, you know, very superficial with their faith, and then they, they were found. They were gathered back together. And at first, they, were mor- they mourned, they wept in repentance. But then they were encouraged. Rejoice that you're back together. Rejoice that you've been found, that you've gathered as God's people again and you're hearing God's word again. Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Because we were lost. He left behind all the pleasures, all the supremacy of heaven to search for us, to search for you and you and you because you were lost. He left and came after you. There's two key verses in these parables. Verse seven, I tell you in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why are the angels rejoicing? Why is there excitement in heaven? Because God is rejoicing. God is excited about every individual person who repents and comes back to him. I hope that fills you up with encouragement and excitement to know that. Last year, uh, you know, we can all say the past pandemics have been, you know, probably a good way to describe it is, is, is messy. And, you know, we've had our ups and our downs and we've been together and apart and together and apart. And... But this is the time of year where Operation Christmas Child launches their campaign to collect shoeboxes. And last year, in November 2020, with all the messiness, you know, that was going on there, we launched a campaign here at Auburn Bible Chapel And I put forth the challenge. I said, I'm going to challenge us as a church to gather 100 shoeboxes. And you know what the craziness was? Is between the shoeboxes we packed here, between the shoeboxes that we told people about and people gave to you and you brought in or, or brought directly to the church, when I pulled up the van, pulled up the cases, counted the shoebox, 104 shoeboxes. That's what we gathered. I was so excited. I'm still excited. And um, 
One of the things, uh, I was talking with um, someone that I know at Operation Christmas Child head office this week, and they shared with me a stat that I didn't know. And remember, stats are stats, but this should be really exciting and encouraging because it was to me. The stat that they have at Operation Christmas Child is that for every six shoeboxes handed out, one child gives their life to Christ. One in six. Don't you wish that you knew that if you talked to six different people this week that one of them would ask Christ into their heart? Wouldn't that be awesome? So 104 shoeboxes, according to stats, you guys, every one of you, were a big part of 18 kids asking Christ into their lives. Thank you. That's incredible. Now, on a larger scale, Canada in 2020 gathered over 373,000 shoeboxes as a country Canada and shipped them off. Worldwide, because there's many countries that participate in this. There's over 9 million shoeboxes collected worldwide in 2020. It's an awesome number. And if you do the math, one in six, that means approximately 1.5 million kids ask Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Nobody's saying amen. Nobody's excited. Come on. This is a message of rejoicing. Hey? Esther and I uh, were fortunate in 2016 and then again in 2017 to actually do trips with Operation Christmas Child. First time we went to Senegal, which is the westernmost country in Africa. And the second time we went to El Salvador. And we had the joy of participating in distributions and handing the shoeboxes out to the kids, putting the shoeboxes in hundreds and thousands of kids' hands and being a part of all that. I, I could share a number of stories. I'm sure some of you have heard our stories a few times. Um, and, and instead of, you know, diving into a bunch of our stories, um, I want to read one story that's, that's on the website. It's called Eve's and a Scarf. And uh, the video was good, but the written story actually goes into more detail. And that's why I've chosen to read the story to you this morning. But if you want to watch the video, you can go on the uh, Operation Christmas Child website and you can, uh, you can uh, see Eve's face and hear him talk about it. But this is what was written in the story. Eve said, when my mother was eight months pregnant with me, our neighbors in Rwanda tried to murder us. My father, a pastor, was respected in the community. So it was shocking when those who lived down the road from them for 20 years came down the road with the intent to kill us. My family literally ran for their lives. I was born in a refugee camp in Congo. When conflict arose there, we sought safety in Kenya. 
But conflict arose there too, so we had to move again. It seemed like everywhere we went, war followed us. After the atrocities I'd seen, my heart was filled with hate. And not just for those who had committed those atrocities. I hated humanity because I had found little of it in people. In Togo, we finally found a place to call home. My father began serving as a pastor again. Our community in Togo was heavily influenced by witch doctors. They taught people to never step foot into a church. These villages were dangerous. Some Christians who went there never came back. The villagers wouldn't come to church, and you couldn't go see them. So how could you reach them for Christ? A shoebox. The village children didn't go to school because they didn't have any school supplies, which we've seen in person. That's not just a statement from them. So their parents were willing to come to the church to receive free school supplies from Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Distribution. The witch doctors warned the villagers to stay away from the church, but many of them went anyway. Eve says, As for me, my heart had been hardened by my early childhood as a refugee. I didn't understand why people hated other people enough to kill them just because they were different from them. I hated people because they were capable of such blind violence, all people I hated except for my family. But when I received my shoebox at age 11, it changed everything. A stranger loves me enough to give me a gift? How can someone love me when they don't even know me? How is that possible when our neighbors in Rwanda had tried to kill us? I thought I had it all figured out, and that shoebox turned my world upside down. In fact, it turned my life right side up, he says. I put my faith in Christ that year. At the shoebox distribution, I had tried to trade one of my gifts for a soccer ball. I had received a wool scarf. I lived in the tropics. I had no idea what to do with this thing. But I had been taught to save everything and waste nothing. So I stored the scarf away. Three years later, after initial application, my family received refugee settlement in Buffalo, New York. And as you know, it's a very cold city in the winter. Was this a coincidence? Eve says, no way. My precious scarf is still meaningful to me today. It's a promise to me that Jesus knew my past and he knows my future and what I need. Jesus is always a step ahead, waiting at the end of the line to keep me warm like a a loving father does. The scarf not only kept me warm, it warmed my heart. Wow, hey? Kind of cool. That's why we do shoeboxes, because lives get changed for the better for Christ, because God is in the business of searching after that one individual who is lost, and he'll do it again, and he'll do it again, and he'll do it again, and rejoices when they are found and they come home.
Psalm 1611 says, you will fill me with joy in your presence. You have God given joy if you've received Christ as your Savior. And I hope that deep down you want to share that. You want others to know of the good news. And there are many ways to do that. But this is one way, one very effective way to do that. So let me encourage you. Grab a shoebox. Fill the shoebox. And then pray over that shoebox. Bring the shoebox here to Auburn, and we'll collect up until I think it's November 18th, every shoebox that's dropped off here. And then we'll pray over them. And then we'll take those shoeboxes to Calvary Church on Lansdowne Street, and they'll pray over those shoeboxes. And then they gather up all the shoeboxes from the Peterborough area, and they ship them off to Calgary, Alberta. And when they arrive in Calgary, they're sorted, and the people there, they pray over them. And the boxes get organized and get ready to be shipped out to El Salvador, Senegal, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Gambia, uh, Guinea-Bissa, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. That's where the Canadian shoeboxes head off to. Each local organizing committee, when they receive the shoeboxes, they rejoice, they praise God, and they pray over those shoeboxes. Because hundreds of thousands of children, because of the shoebox, are going to hear the salvation story. They're going to hear the good news. They're going to hear how much God loves them and how he sent his son to die on the cross so that they could be found and they could have God's joy and be a rejoicing person down deep in their heart. And as I told you, the stats say one in six will accept Christ as their Savior. But the cool thing is, is, is with Operation Christmas Child is it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just giving them a shoebox, having an exciting day, sharing the message with them, and then going their way. No. They really want to invest in the kids' lives. And so there's another program called the Greatest Journey. And the Greatest Journey is a 12-week program for discipleship. They come back to those communities and they offer up these 12-week programs. And that's what I've seen it in person. We sat in on one of the classes in El Salvador as this teacher stood there and went through the booklet. I think it was lesson, it was week five that we were there. And I don't speak Spanish but I could see the love, the compassion that she had for these kids as she was explaining the lesson that day and as she read John 3.16 to them, tears welled up in her eyes. She didn't know these kids, but she loved the kids in her community and she was willing to share the good news with them. And the cool thing is, 
is they do this 12-week program, but then they do it with a big splash at the end. After, the, after a child successfully goes through the 12 weeks, they literally do a graduation ceremony. I, I mean, I kind of, well, I, I, I didn't really know before we went to El Salvador about the graduation ceremonies, but some of them do it right up. They've got the hat, they've got the gown, um, and it's a big thing. Parents come, grandparents come, and the gospel message is shared again to all these, all these kids' parents. And watch some of those kids walk up the center aisle to receive their certificate in a Bible and in their own language. I mean, the excitement, the joy in those kids is awesome. The, the one boy, uh, Ivan, I think was his name, he walked up and his chest was out like this and he strutted. And I, probably he caught my eye more because part of the graduation ceremony is we walked up with the kids and that was one of the kids that Esther walked to the front with. And he was just smiling ear to ear, chest out. He was so full of joy and excitement. It was, it was just a great time of rejoicing. Rejoicing in what God had done in their lives. We packed 104 last year. Now things are a little bit more open. I know for, for me... I can, I can set up a table at the Pete's Hockey Games and we can hand out shoeboxes at the next couple of Pete's Games. We just did it this Thursday um, and Esther and her friend, they handed out 25 shoeboxes. And so I want to put through, forth a challenge. Pack shoeboxes, but tell people. Tell other people about the shoeboxes. Take an extra one, hand it out. Tell people they can pack them online. It's really simple to pack them online. And I think that the foot of this cross, we compiled 200 shoeboxes this year. So that's my challenge. And I just want to sum up by saying happiness, joy, rejoicing, any other word that comes to mind, any other synonym in there, it all begins with God and the greatest of God's joy. Let me read verse 10 again. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Walmart's got it all wrong. That is not where joy begins. Thank you.